0: Hey guys, welcome to another episode of In the Trenches with Andrew Taylor. This is my first two-part episode and why, because Dr. Dante Bryant and I had a lot to discuss. Dr. Bryant is a very interesting individual with a lot to share. He's an assistant professor in the School of Social Work and College of Health and Human Services at the University of North Carolina in Charlotte. He's a guest speaker, he's a published author, he's a researcher, a social activist who has been trained as a critical social theorist and social worker. His research and writing focus on racial institutional inequity and black and white body politics within the United States. I first heard Dante speak a few years ago at the Wilderness Therapy Symposium in Asheville, North Carolina, and he's charismatic, he's a lot of fun but he's very well-researched and he knows what he's talking about and this two-part episode is important because Dante and I cover some really touchy subjects in a way that most people can't and he's been able to help me connect dots that others couldn't and we cover some heavy stuff. We're talking about racism, sexism, privilege, oppression, diversity, all the kind of stuff you want to avoid at your next dinner party or uh, with you know family gathering with the holidays coming up but please listen with an open mind and remember that we all have a lot to learn in this area and that's why I really wanted to interview Dante he's got a strong powerful message one that I think we all need to hear right now and that could be really helpful for for all of us please enjoy and thanks for joining all right Dante welcome to the podcast how you doing today buddy
1: I'm doing good, man. How about yourself, man?
0: I'm doing great. I'm doing yeah. great. It's an, it's an honor to have you. I've been looking forward to this interview. And um, so you have a PhD in social work. I've heard you speak, I think maybe three or four times now on social issues, diversity, privilege. And you've had a massive impact on me. And that's, you know, the purpose of this interview but what got you into all this, man? How did you end up speaking, and, and what got you so passionate about these issues, and what's your background?
1: Well, I think, first of all, let me say that I appreciate your your comments. I mean, it's it's good to know that the work that you do has some kind of impact, right? Because you don't you don't always know. You know, you don't necessarily always get that feedback, and, uh, and sometimes even when you do, you're not sure whether or not you should trust it. So I, I do appreciate that. Um, and... Uh, Again, before I get started, uh, I just want to take a moment to acknowledge that, um, so right now I am a um, assistant professor at University of North Carolina at Charlotte in the School of Social Work in College and Health and Human Services. Um, and I also want to acknowledge that uh, the my views, uh, perspectives, and the things that I voice on, on and during this conversation are solely those of mine. Um, they do not necessarily represent the university. Um, but uh, I would like to acknowledge the university as someone who does support me in this work uh, as I go forward, so, so that's that. Uh, cool. In terms of um, your question, um, to be honest with you, I mean, I was raised, so I, I grew up, uh, both of my parents were educators. Uh, they were also, well, in terms of their, their primary profession, they, were, they worked in education. On the side, or in addition to that, they also served as community activists and and social organizers and were very involved in the local community. And I think that because of that, I grew up in a household that conversations about society and about what it means to be a part of society, and more specifically what it means to be a Black person in this particular society, uh, were common conversations at our dinner table. Like that, That was the conversation. And so as a result, I think I was raised with a certain critical awareness, which then kind of helped shape how I viewed the world uh, growing up. And, and so I think when you have that kind of critical lens early on, you begin to take note of things, you know, as you're growing up, whether it's in elementary school, middle school, high school, college, uh, in terms of how people are treated and how people uh, engage or are engaged by particular social systems and, and individuals within those systems. And so, and then you have your own experiences, right? And they're also filtered through that kind of like critical social lens. And so I think the, the combination of all of that over time uh, just kind of led me into a space where I felt like this was something that I should do. I always been engaged in, in, in social activism, community organizing. Again, my so my parents did, right? So I don't, I don't really know how to do much else, to be honest with you, right? Uh, I, I, just, I honestly don't. And it just seemed like a natural fit. And I think over time, it just kind of, it's kind of evolved, right? Um, I, I've worked in different spaces and in different capacities. And uh, and right now this is, you know, this is where I'm at. And again, my, my, my research focus is, is you know, uh, racial inequity within social institutions and
0: black body politics, right? And how that plays out in our current social system. So,
1: yeah, I hope that answers Ooh. the question,
0: yeah no definitely that definitely helps me understand your background better and and kind of where you come from i think that as we dive into this conversation you know why you've had such a powerful impact on me is because before i heard you speak probably six 12 months earlier i heard someone else speak on diversity and oppression good speaker you know i mean not not here to criticize but It started out with, here are all the ways that, you know, white, straight males, um, you know, with a few more categories in there have oppressed society. And as a white, straight male, and I I fit like six of the eight categories that the speaker laid out, I was like, ouch, you know? And, And I think this is an important way to start this conversation because my immediate response was like, I'm a good guy. I love (laughs) people. I'm not a racist. I'm not prejudiced. I'm not sexist. I'm a good guy. And honestly, dude, and I can say this to my listeners and to you, I, I put up a wall. I'm like, this is a bunch of crap, man. I can't hear it. I don't know how to engage in this conversation. And I was very turned off. Fast forward a year later and you spoke. And, and I did have some really great conversations with some friends and people that I trusted and some vulnerable conversations around how am I, how am I racist? How am I not, or how am I sexist? How am I oppressing society just being who I am? And, and then I heard you speak and it really opened me up to putting the walls down, putting the defensiveness down and saying, okay, I'm listening and this does make sense. And yeah, I'm not a bad person per se, you know, but there's some things I need to be aware of that right now aren't issues for me, but are issues for other people. And so I don't know, man. I, I could talk for a while about this, but the point is for you to talk.
1: <laughs> no, 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 no. I mean, this is helpful though. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And, and so I think, I think for starters, maybe a good place to start is, is maybe you can walk us through. Like, and my listeners like what is privilege and what is institutional or systemic racism or sexism which I've you know you've taught me a lot of those things and like how do you speak to people like me that might get really defensive and I see this with people around me you know and and um, I see this with people they kind of they put up their guard and they're like no I mean an example would be that all lives matter, you know, not just black lives. It's like, okay. Yeah. And now I understand why black lives matter matters. You know, yeah, yeah. It helped me understand that. And, and so my goal I guess with this is that any listeners that might be in my situation or where I was a few years back, really defensive and kind of like, man, I'm a good person that you seem to be able to get me to the other side of that conversation in a way that I go, I get it now. So, Dante, I guess the question is, what is privilege and power and how does understanding those two things help? Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, so that, uh, those two by themselves are massive, right? Like absolutely massive uh, uh, questions. And so like, so I'll, I'll try to start with power, right? And at least I'll, I'll try to define it in a way that makes sense, I guess, within the context of this conversation. But like um, when you think about At least when i think about power right i think about the ability to tell like the ability to tell the story right like not a story but like the story um whether it's like the american story because i think if you have the ability if you are in a position where you can tell the story of people of society you have the ability to shape who is righteous, who is unrighteous, right? Um, who is good, who the good guy is, who the bad guy is, um, the sacred, the profane, right? Um, to more Lomax in her book, um, uh, Jezebel Unhinged, she says that storytelling is always positional, right? Like you're always telling a story from a particular vantage point, right? And I think what's implied in that is that not only... Is storytelling positional, but it also positions other people. Does that, is that does that make sense? If I'm in power, then I can tell the story about the what it truly means to be American, right? I I can I'm gonna make more often than not. I'm gonna make myself the center of the story, right? I'm gonna be the good guy. I can define who the bad guys are. So if you don't have the power that I have, then I get the ability to define who you are in the world and more specifically who you are in relation to me. Right. So like if you think about like this, like if I were to ask you, I guess I will ask you, right? So (laughs) based on the education that you received, right? Your K through twelve education, even like probably in part your collegiate, but definitely K through twelve, like where did civilization start? Like it's a real question.
0: Where did civilization yeah start? like
1: where did if I ask you like what were you taught like when you in k through twelve when, and they told you this is where civilization this is where philosophy and mathematics and all these things started like what what were you taught
0: i mean i I can't remember, so okay, I feel so, kind of dumb, but like <laughs> if, if you want to go to my first like it what sticks out to me is you know you know, European immigrants coming to America, right? That's, if you say, Andrew, what do you remember from school and history? That's mm-hmm. my first memory of like, okay, I remember learning that and that sticking out to me, right?
1: Okay, so if I would ask you where philosophy started, what would you
0: say? Greece, Greek okay. philosophy.
1: If I would ask you, where was mathematics
0: started? What would you say? Hmm. Based on what you were taught, right? Based on what I was taught, where did math come from? I mean, Einstein. Sticks out to me, but yeah. I, I he yeah. started, but, <laughs> but know, they, he
1: was definitely pretty good at it, right?
0: But like, <laughs> but man, I, think, I, did, I I should have studied for this interview more. And now I'm feeling like I'm gonna no, fail this interview. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but but even like with the answer that you provided, right? Like most of us right. were taught in K twelve that philosophy. You're talking about Aristotle, Plato, Socrates, right? Like these these are your Greek, your Roman philosophers, right? Like this is yeah. Early civilization, Right, we talk about mathematics, talk about the Pythagorean theorem, right? Um, mm-hmm. and, and all this coming out of Greece and Rome, right? And so if you grew up in America, right, you were told or taught by and large, but K through 12 in our public school, and even our private school, our mainstream education, that civilization started in Greece and Rome to where it started. Now, if you go to China, and I've never been through school in China or in Japan, I've talked to people who have, right? And you ask them, they're not taught in K through 12 that civilization started in Greece and Rome. That's not that's not the story that they're told. Like, if you are born and raised in China and you are educated in China, then it's a pretty good chance that you're taught that civilization started where? In China. In Asia, yeah. Yeah, or somewhere in Asia, right? Exactly. Right. Because we tend to make ourselves when we tell our stories we make ourselves the center of the story. That's what we do right and everybody else becomes a supporting actor. Right. When we tell the great American story. Right. We talk about, you know, the, the ancient knowledge that comes over from Greece and Rome. We talk about discovering America, right? This, this language of mm-hmm. <laughs> discovering someplace that people were already living in, right? Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, we talk about like, you know, building this, this industrialization and we talk about like, you know, uh, crops and, you know, and, and how we built the American wealth, right? This is the story. And whoever has the power to tell that story, to me, that is how I understand power. Yeah, right. Because if you have the ability, if you're the one telling that story again, not only do you define who you are, but you define who everybody else is who participates in your story. Everybody. And that's power. Like if you're talking about power in terms of like social inequity, so forth and so on, that is power. And historically in this country, the primary person who's had the capacity to tell the story, not a story, but the story, has been white men. And more specifically, white, wealthy men. And even more specifically, we talk about white, wealthy, men, heterosexual men. They've told the American story. And as a result, everybody else has to play their respective roles. Women need to stay in their place. People of color need to stay in their place, because that's, where, that's their character in this particular story.
0: right? And that's power. That is power. Does does that make sense? It does. It does. And so how does that relate to privilege?
1: Well, I think that one, being able to tell the story, right. (laughs) Like is like the ultimate act of privilege, right? (laughs) Like you're, you're in a position and not only is it an ultimate act of privilege, but it also defines who receives privilege going forward. Right. So, um, yeah, so like if, if again, if, I, if I'm telling a story about if I'm allowed to define, I, I took it all the time, right? Like if, if someone came to me and was like, hey, you know, Dante, we want you to define what a good looking man looks like, like what the ideal man looks like. And whatever definition you come up with, the, everyone else in this country will subscribe, will have to subscribe to that definition. The moment you ask me to do that... For me, that's a very simple task, right? To like, Dante, what does the greatest looking, in, oh, greatest looking man in America look like? I would literally say, you're looking at him. Like, that's it. Right?
0: Like, that's, that's the
1: end of the conversation, right? Like, we don't have to go any further. Like, just, I'm like, just take a picture of this, right? And we're good, right? And just disseminate this to everyone and let them know that this is the standard by which we should all be held, right? Like, and, that's, and that's it. So now, right, it, but in doing that, in doing that, what has become ideal, since I have the power right, and the privilege to tell that story, now anyone who looks like me benefits from the story that I've told. Because the, more, the closer you look like me, the more you look like Dante, the more attractive you'll be considered to be. And we know, right? research tells us, like, in society at baseline, attractive people are more likely to get hired right? They're more likely to be treated better. They're more likely to be given the benefit of the doubt, right? They're more likely to to a certain degree, right? They're more likely considered to be more intelligent and more capable. So now what I've done in being able to tell the story, I've privileged anyone who looks like me. And if I've privileged anyone who looks like me, what have I done to
0: those who look the exact opposite? I mean, you've kind of isolated them maybe or disadvantaged them, right? Yeah, I mean, because you don't look anything like me.
1: So your life is going to suck, right? Like from now on, right? Like your life (laughs) is going to be tough, right? Because every female you meet is going to be looking for someone who looks really, really they're going to be looking for me, right? Every every male who is attracted to men is going to be looking for me. Mm -hmm. And then when they see you, your complexion, your height, the texture of your hair, your eye color, all of these things, right? The things that make you who you are now become disadvantages for you. So the very way that you show up in the world, right? Becomes problematic because you did not have the ability or the power or the privilege to tell the story, to define what beauty looked like, to define what humanity looked like. To define what righteousness looked like what uh, what sanctity looks like, what health looks like, what good looks like, what bad you had you didn't have any input in that I did
0: so we inherit we inherit the narrative right we, we inherit, inherit the narrative the, yeah, wherever we land on it, whether we inherit the privilege or we inherit the, the disadvantage, and then so how do we start to, how do we apply that and start to recognize that in our, in our day-to-day? The, st- the, the statistics that you shared at the last conference that really stood out to me were the, the history of white men's perception of gender equality, race equality. Do you, yeah. you want to throw so, those out real quick?
1: Yeah, I, not, I, I remember the big, like the was in 1920s they did a study where they, uh, they asked white men, Right now, mind you, this is the early 1920s. Right, and we also like women gained the right to vote, like in the you know later in the 1920s. But it's the early 1920s, right? Um, and what's important here is context, right? Because <laughs> there's there's a whole lot of things that women could not do, could not legally do in 1920. They couldn't vote. They couldn't serve on a jury. They couldn't be lawyers. They couldn't be uh, uh, judges. Um, they couldn't own their own property. They actually had no comprehensive right to their own wages if they were allowed to work for money, right? It's 1920s. Matter of fact, if you were a woman in the 1920s, now, mind you, when we say women, like, we're not talking about women of color. We're talking about white women, right? If you were a white woman in the 1920s, you could not even go and buy a beer in a bar, right? You did not have the right to do that. But they asked men, they said, do you think that women have equal rights as men, and are treated fairly, right? Like these, these are like the kind of questions they're asking. Nineteen twenties, and over eighty percent of the men said yes, they are treated fairly. Eighty percent. Wow. Now looking back at that, now we're looking at the absurdity of it, right? Like that, that makes no sense. It made. It does not make sense that 80% of the population could look at all of these rights being denied, all the things that women were not allowed to do, and say, you know what? They're being treated fairly. But the people in that time earnestly believed that. At least the men did. Now, mind you, of course, they did this study only asked white men, right? And I don't know that it would be all that different how they asked you know, Black men. Now, the question then becomes, if they had asked the women, do they think that they were being treated fairly? Do you think that number would have been as high? Mm-hmm. In my, I, I would venture to guess no. Yeah. Right? Because this is, this is the women's suffrage movement. is building up, right? So clearly, <laughs> women, <laughs> there's a and large number of women who do not feel this way, right? right? This is actually happening. And in the midst of this happening, white men are like, well, no, like, but they are treated fairly. And then you fast forward to early 1960s, very similar question. I think it came out of the Gallup study, like 1962 or 1963. They asked the exact same question, but it was in relation to race. And did they feel like Black people were treated fairly? Again, more than 80% of the people said yes. And now mind you, they interviewed uh, white men and women, and they said yes. Now mind you, this is pre-Voting Rights Act, pre-Fair Housing Act. This is before the, even we hit the pinnacle of the civil rights movement, and so historically, what you have, right? Like so, one of the things that that privilege does is that, so like by, by definition, by definition, right? Privilege is defined as a special right, advantage, or immunity granted or available only to a particular person or group. Right. And, it, and it's important to look at that, right, because it's literally there's like five different components to when we start thinking about privilege. It's a special right. That's one. It's an advantage. That's two or an immunity. That's three. Now, this immunity is what also gives rise. The immunity helps to explain, at least to some degree, why men in the 1920s and whites in the 1960s felt as if. 1920s, women are treated fairly. 1960s, people of color, or Black people in particular, are treated fairly. Part of the reason why they can make that statement, and, 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 and may even believe it, is that part of privilege is an immunity, which means you are not subject to certain types of experiences
0: that others are subject to. It's not part of your life. Does, it, does that make sense? Total sense. And, and so we end up with these blind spots. That's yep. We're blind spots.
1: We never right. very real blind spots. Right. Like I can never tell you, like my wife and I, we have a daughter. Right. And I remember I was telling my class, you know, I'm having a girl and they're like, Oh, you know, did you want a boy? I'm like, no, no. I got like, I definitely, like, I definitely <laughs> wanted a girl. Right. And they were like, why? I'm like, because, because I, my role in this becomes very different. If, if I have a girl, I have no idea what it takes to survive and thrive as a black woman in this country that is an entire body of knowledge that is only acquired through inheritance and through experience of being a black woman in this particular society i have none of that knowledge none of it it's a very specific type of knowledge my wife has that knowledge and as a result it's my wife's job to teach it to my daughter that's her job, right? Like, I can't you know, understand. Yeah, Gandhi always says, <laughs> it's a big job, yeah. It's a big job, right? And, and Gandhi says, I mean, it's controversial thing he may or may not be. He has a statement where he says, one of the biggest problems we have is that we have people trying to lead us out into someplace some place they have never been. I can't lead my daughter into Black womanhood in America. I don't have that knowledge. My wife does it would yeah. be foolish of me to think that i did see so yeah. that's a blind spot that i have because it's a set of experiences i've never had and so as a result i don't know any of that i don't but the problem is is that my positional power at least socially right makes me think that i can <laughs> right <laughs> all right and like and we see this like we see this Like, whether it's like social programming, whatever it may be, right? It's the people in positions of power and and, and privilege and resource and access and so forth and so on. We say, oh, no, like marginalized populations come to us and say, this is what the problem is. And we're like, no, 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 no. That's not the problem, right? (laughs) Let me tell you what your problem really is, right? Because I have the capacity to tell the story, Mm -hmm. right? And if I tell, if I have the power and the positional power and privilege to tell the story, then I can define what the problem is. And then I can tell you what the solution is. And your knowledge becomes irrelevant, right? So I think, so this is that blind spot, right? You know, there's there's things that we just don't know because we've never been through it. Like on any level. And so I think that's, I like, that speaks to your blind spot, right? But, but it's interesting because we only like, I was thinking about this the other day, right? Because like you do like, you hike up in the woods and stuff like that, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, like, <laughs> and I remember thinking, I was thinking to myself the other day, I was like, you know, it's, it's fascinating. It's only in, when we start looking at things like racism, sexism, class classism, and all your different isms, right? It's only in those spaces do we default. Do we look for solutions? not from the people who are experiencing the issues but from the people who have the power Mm -hmm. this is one of the only spaces that we do this because if you think about like let's say we're all stranded in the woods right like we're all stranded in the woods you know you've been living on this mountain i don't know why you've been living there but you have right like you've been living on this mountain for like 10 years (laughs) right like you know every nook and cranny of this mountain And then there's 10 other other people, we're all sitting there, and there's one other person in our group, they've never been hiking, they've never been in the mountains, they've never been around more than 10 trees at a time in their life, but they're rich Mm -hmm. and they're powerful, right? And they have all this equipment. You, you don't have any equipment. What you have is knowledge of how to, because you don't have the resources, right? But what you have is you have the knowledge of how to survive on this mountain and we're stuck on this mountain. It makes sense and most people, I think, would agree that it's best to follow you because you know how to survive here. And I think in most cases, people would encourage the wealthy person, a person with all the, you know, backpack. I need you, you, you need to do whatever he says. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because Mm -hmm. he knows he's been living here his whole life. It would be absurd. For us to turn to the person with all the resources and assume that they have the knowledge of the mountain. But that's what we do when it comes to things yeah. like racism, sexism, you know, classism, et cetera. And those are yeah. people with the largest blind spots. You know, and it's unfortunate.
0: You know, it's extremely unfortunate. Yeah, does that does that answer your question? Does that get at that by any chance? It it does. And I think it it kind of helps frame our conversation in that. You know, what that is how understanding our own whiteness or our own privilege or our own power, that's how we start to understand other people's experience, right? Is that, that there is privilege, that, that there is power in being a white heterosexual male. You yeah. know, even though I, I can say I don't, I don't feel that, but to your point, is of course I don't. there's there's no situation where i would not feel that right
1: but but i think that's that that, and that's part of the complication right so like a lot of times and i I have a guy uh i don't know if i'll call him a friend but he's definitely a conversation partner uh who i went to high school with and he he's made on several occasions he's like you know what do he's a white male right he's like you know you say that i have privilege he's like you have more money than i do you know what I'm saying? You have more education than mm-hmm. I do, right? And he's like, you know, I'm struggling with my health insurance, my family's health insurance. I'm poor. I, you know, I, my my hands have calluses. He's literally, my hands have calluses, and you're telling me that I'm privileged. And he's like, that's a difficult one for me to swallow. And he, and, and the reality is, like, everything he's, he he's like, I struggle, I fight right, every day, and what he's saying is a hundred percent legitimate, no doubt. Yeah. Right. Um. And I think that becomes part of the challenge, right? Because I think we we often look at privilege. One of the things that keeps us from being able to see this privilege, right, This, this special right, this advantage, this immunity that we have, is that we often view privilege through the lens of what we don't have. So we often define privilege based on what we, not on what we have, but what we don't have. So. My, my colleague, that I'm saying about, he looks at people who are wealthier than him, right? He looks at, uh, whether it's individually or collectively, right? He looks at people who have, you know, uh, more education than him, who have white collar jobs. And he's like, that's, that's what privilege looks like, right? And it becomes this kind of very individualized thing. That's what privilege looks like. And, and when we do that, we're largely focusing on this kind of individualistic Types of forms of privilege, which are real forms of privilege, they like, don't get me wrong, but I think what we miss are the more like more nuanced institutional forms of privilege. So, so For instance, between 2000 2006 right they did a study where they found that literally 1 million black people died between 2000 and 2006 Right, that would not have died had they had this had the equivalent living conditions and access to health care as white people in their safe economic bracket. Between 2000 and 2006, right? This is a published study, epidemiological journal, right? Like these these are doctors and epidemiologists and, and who are looking at this and healthcare scientists and being like, listen, the living conditions of black people, generally speaking, if they were equivalent to whites of the same economic bracket, one million fewer black people would have died between 2000 and 2006. That is a a privilege that my friend does not see because it's institutional. You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. My wife, uh, we had a conversation the other day about, not the other day, a couple weeks ago, about having a second child. Right. And she comes to me and says, babe, you know, I want another kid. We, we always said we wanted, we wanted two kids, no more, just two, right? And, and, she, <laughs> she, and she tells me this. And immediately, I get, uh, apparently, I looked extremely anxious. And, <laughs> <right>. <laughs> you know, and she, she pauses and she's like, babe, are you okay? You know, I thought you said, I thought we agreed, right? This is all about agreements in my house, which means, you know, we do what my wife says. She says, you know, I thought we agreed. <laughs> that we were going to do two kids and that was it right i'm like no 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 no, it's not that the reason why i paused right now my wife mind you my wife is a medical doctor with an additional advanced degree but i know i know from the research that i've done and i know that she knows this that even her with her md her master's degree her advanced education right her economic status and then you pile mine on top of that. Mm-hmm. I still know that my wife is two times more likely, at least two times more likely, to die during childbirth than a white woman with a GED or high school diploma who is low income.
0: Can you walk me through like, how that plays out?
1: Why? They're still trying. There's a series of factors, right? They look at things such as what they call psychological and emotional weathering, weathering right? So giving birth. Uh, most doctors will tell you that giving birth is about as close to when we'll come to death without dying, right? It's a profoundly taxing event on the human body, the human female body, right? Profoundly taxing. What they found, one of the things is that women, black women in particular, endure what they call psychologically emotional weathering, everyday lives that are centered around issues of gender and race that take their psychological and emotional uh, and physical toll on their bodies over time. And so then when you combine that with this inherently stressful event of actually birthing a child, what you've done is you've compounded the issue or you've compounded the challenge. This is one of the reasons, right? Now that weathering that my wife deals with day, day out, being a black female in her current social position, Right. That weathering, the the microaggressions, the, you know, the passive statements, all all of that stuff, dealing with that on a day in, day out basis is something that her white colleague does not have to deal with. Right. And this goes back to that immunity. Right. That privilege is oftentimes an immunity from something. And that's a privilege that my friend doesn't see. Right. Yeah. Because we tend to think of privilege as these individual events and we don't think of it in terms of institutionally. Which is which which makes it difficult for us to see it. I think another reason why it becomes difficult for us to see it is that we also privilege conflicts with our own personal stories, right? (laughs) You know? (laughs) Like there's like there's there's a national story, right? Like about America, what it means to be America, right? Like there's that story, right? But then there's your personal story, which (laughs) which helps you make sense of your of yourself within this larger social system, right? Your story explains to you, right? And then you use that to explain to other people, right? (laughs) Why you are where you are in life, why you've accomplished what you've accomplished or haven't accomplished what you've accomplished, why you've been successful, why you haven't been successful, why the person next to you has been successful, or why they haven't been successful, right? This is your personal story. And we all have the capacity to write our own personal stories, to explain this world that we live in, to explain our position and space in it, right? Yeah, we, are, yeah. we like the casting directors of our own play, so to speak, right? And then when all of a sudden someone like myself pops up, right, mm-hmm. <laughs> and says, hey, there's a major character that you forgot, right, to put in your play. Their name is Privilege. And now all of a sudden, this character disrupts that entire personal story, disrupts the entire thing, and in some ways challenges it. Because now all of a sudden when people hear, oh, you're privileged, it's like, oh, you're trying to say I didn't work hard? It's like, no, no, no. No one say you didn't work hard, <laughs> right? Yeah. Remember, it can also be an immunity or yeah. just an advantage. And so it, it does, I think it becomes, it becomes very difficult for us to, to one, even be willing to acknowledge it, right? And also too, I mean, to be honest with you, I mean, let's be honest, like a- a- acknowledging privilege, acknowledging that we have privileges, Um, the moment I stand up and say, as a man, I have certain privileges and rights and access and immunities that my wife does not have, does not have. I have certain advantages that she does not have. The moment I say that I'm also held accountable to it. So now that I've said that and acknowledged it right now, you're going to judge me and my character based on how I respond to that information. Yeah, if I do nothing, they're just going to say, oh, you know, it's not that Dante doesn't know. He doesn't care right now. like now I've gone from being ignorant to heartless, right? <laughs> like, <Yeah. laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like, like before he was just dumb. Now he's actually a bad person. Yeah. And, what I, and if I respond to it, if I actually act on that, that knowledge, now what I'm doing, because of how we understand power in our society because we understand power in terms of if I have it, then you can't, right? As if it's this limited quality. Everyone can't have power. It's a have and a have nots. That's how we do this. Capitalism, baby. It's how it works, right? Mm-hmm. There's not enough to go around. So now if I not only acknowledge that I have privilege, but I, t- I choose to act on that knowledge in a positive way to redistribute the power and access that I have. Now what I'm doing is I'm risking disrupting my position and my ability to control the story. And if I can't control the story, then who's going to guarantee that I'm the good guy. Who's going to guarantee that I'm still the most attractive person in the world, which we all know to be true. Right. But we can't, we can't, <laughs> we can't I can't bank on everyone else writing that story. Mm-hmm. Right. And so am I really willing to give that power up? So a lot of times I think we feign ignorance. We feign ignorance because we don't want to acknowledge the privilege. Because if we acknowledge it and don't do anything, we're gonna, our character will be judged. If we acknowledge it and we do something, we run the risk of giving up the power to tell the story. And that's, yeah. and that's, a, that's a very real fear. I mean, that's a, that's a real fear. Like that, that power and privilege to tell the story is massive. I mean, that's what Make America Great Again, right? <laughs> it, that's what it's about. It's about let's get back, right, to the time where we told the story. And, we, and you and I talked about this before, right? Like, that wasn't the first time that Make America Great Again is not a Donald Trumpism. Like, it's not. Nixon used it before he did, the exact same pitch. And it was used right, right after the Civil Rights Movement. Any time in our history, when you see other groups right, rising up to put their stories on the table, to challenge the story, right? any time you see that, you see America largely pull back and say, no, 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 no. Let's get back to the true story. You see this. It happens every time, every single time
0: so in 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 playing that out, do you see, and maybe I'm stretching here, but is is make America great again, Donald Trump, a reaction to having a black president
1: in part yeah I think I think it's not but not just a black president,
0: right. Um, to oversimplify it, right? That, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but
1: definitely a huge part of it, right? And I would say in addition to that, because what else happened to, the Obama, to the, the Obama campaign, right? Like what else you also saw was the rise of the LGBTQ population's rights. That's right. right.
0: Gay marriage. Gay marriage. All this stuff
1: starts happening. And it's like,
0: whoa, okay,
1: what's going on here? You know, and then you have a black man sitting in the Oval Office. Like, okay, things. this is not the American story. And mm-hmm. it's not. It's not the American story. It is a American story, but it's not the dominant American story. It's not. Historically, that has not been the case, right? So what do we do? We're like, oh, hold on, hold on, on. we need We need to pause all of this. And we Mm -hmm. need to get back to our true selves, who we truly are, which means we need to go back to that original story. And that story is not a new story, right? Like it's been around forever. The moment we decide to separate from the British, we begin to tell a story. We begin to tell a very specific group of people begin to tell the American
0: story. Um, It's interesting because there's a great metaphor there about us personally, right? Like personally as human beings, you know, getting back to our roots. Well, is that necessarily a good thing? I mean, we're all uh, growing and progressing and learning. I don't want to go back to my 15-year-old self. (laughs) You know, like I'm a lot... I've come a long ways, man. I've learned a ton. Yeah. Like, you know, to re- and I, I see what you're saying, and that's how it can really stunt our growth is this philosophy of needing to get back to whatever it was, right? Yeah. and, and you know, really, it's,
1: this- it's getting back to a certain power dynamic. Like, that's really what it's about. But you're 100% right. Like Kierkegaard says, only a fool wants to go back to where he was before, right? Like, it's like, <laughs> like, 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 you should have learned something. You should be a better person than you were you know, a day I exactly, know, two days yeah. ago, 10 years ago, right? Like you should be, but it, but it's challenging. Right. And you see this now, like this is the first, this is a really interesting time because this is the first time really in American history where the dominant story has been challenged in a public space on a public platform. And it's being challenged from every direction. And when I say the dominant story, that the story of white Heterosexual men, largely white, right, Mm -hmm. in this country, and this is the first time. And all of a sudden, now you have various LGBTQ populations speaking out, right, and they have a they have a voice at the table, right, because they have social media. There's all these different ways to raise your voice up, right? Internet, right? The The internet changed the game. It it changed the game because it broadened the platform, and so now everyone has the capacity to tell a story. Now that doesn't mean that that story carries weight. Right, <laughs> like, like, <this laughs> like my mom used to always say, you know, your feelings matter, but they only matter to you, baby. Like, that's it. Right? <laughs> like, you know, like, it's a, but just the fact that you can now publicly tell your story. Right. And now all of a sudden, those who are sitting at the table are having to share space. Even if they haven't truly relinquished comprehensive power, they're having to share space. And one thing I do know is that I had a professor one time tell me, he said, when you're exposed to accessories long enough, they become necessities. Right? right. And I, I see it with kids. You take away a kid's cell phone, you, you would think you just violated their constitutional rights, right? Like, it's like, like no, I have a right. Like No, you don't. Like, like having a cell phone is a privilege, right? Like, it's, it's a privilege. But it's hard to convince a kid who's always had a cell phone that having a cell phone is a privilege. Yeah, It's hard to do that. It, mm-hmm. to them, it's a right. It's like, no, like I eat, I sleep, I breathe, I cell phone, period. Like these things all, like these are all <laughs> rights that I have as a human being. And the moment you start trying to call, just call into question or, or redistribute the rights and the resources that one group has always had, it feels like a violation on their rights. I think that a study, it was a Gallup study done, I think it was 2016 where they found that um, it was like 43% of whites felt like there was some, like that racism against whites existed. And then 13% said that they didn't feel like racism was an issue for Black people or white people. Right? It was, well, it wasn't an issue for Black people. right? But just the fact that you have about 40% of people, 30 to 40% of people who are saying, you know what, like I'm feeling violated as a white person in this country. Mm-hmm. And it's like okay and what ways are you feeling violated and then when you look at the descriptions of these ways right people are taking our jobs it's 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 the same narrative you've always heard right mm-hmm. and i think part of that is it's like oh no for the first time you're being called to the task like white men are having to police themselves in public spaces today in ways they've never had to before like if nothing else the me too movement called attention to that right like Like I hear men now, and I've never heard this before like the last probably like five years or so. I hear men talk about how they are managing their relationships or interactions with women in the workspace because they're being called to task in ways that they never have been before.
0: I've noticed the change as well, for sure.
1: Yeah, it's a different type of accountability. And if you've never had to, if you've never had to manage yourself in a space where you were not the authority, it is, and all of a sudden someone asks you to do it or demands that you do it, it is absolutely exhausting.
0: And then what you have is, is kind of that concept of white fragility where exactly we go well now i'm being persecuted well, now, now i'm, I'm being persecuted. To, now like, I'm having to give up my yeah. things now i'm having to watch what i say and
1: yeah it's and, like no and, you're having to do what everyone else has always had
0: to do right this is what gay <laughs> people have to do every day this is what black yes. people have to do every day it's every what day have to do every day and we're and we're upset yeah i get now, it now and that's
1: you see, and, and that's how the white fragility comes in. And when we talk about white fragility, I don't think we, we tend to really kind of contextualize it properly, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But that's, you're spot on, right? It's like all of a sudden now. And, but I had a friend of mine, um, white female, brilliant, 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 brilliant person. Um, she's a Methodist minister. And she and I were talking, and she said something to me years, it had to be 2008. She said to me, Dante, I actually feel bad for white men right now. And my knee jerk reaction was like, what? I'm not feeling bad for white men, get out of here. Who feels bad for white men? Like, really? (laughs) And then she went on and she was like, no, like they were never, they're having to do something today in terms of negotiating space that one, they've never had to do before. And two, they have not been socialized with the skills to do it. And I was like, and now all of a sudden, now I felt bad. I'm like, nah, feel like I'm judgy, right? So, but I'm just like, because <laughs> I hadn't thought about that because for me, negotiating space, watching my language, being very, being very particular about how I show up physically, recognizing that my body is perceived a certain way and having to negotiate. Like, to me, this is just what you do. I don't know how to live any other life. Mm-hmm. And I can't imagine... Like if someone were to ask me to teach this right and I've tried like to mentor kids who may not have the skill set trying to teach them it's it's difficult to even teach it to someone. Because the amount of knowledge is literally a lifetime of knowledge and all of a sudden I have a white male who may be 25 35 45 55 right and mm-hmm. has never had he's had this blind spot right because this is a certain type of privilege that's granted him immunity so forth, or her immunity, right? They never had to deal with this particular issue. And all of a sudden now, because the social winds have shifted, boom, not only are they expected to know it, but they're expected to be able to execute it at a high level. And that's not even a reasonable request. And so you see this breakdown, this inability to cope and manage in that space. And that is in part, just definitely in part, when you talk about white fragility, like that's part of it. Yeah. You know, that is definitely part of it. Um, but I think that's when privilege comes back to bite you. Like, I was talking to this guy one day and he says to me, you know, he had lost his job. This is like, you know, right uh, probably about early to midway through the, the that recession that we had, you know, and great guy, cool guy. And we're just in there talking. And he literally says to me, white guy, and he goes, this wasn't supposed to happen to me. In mm-hmm. that statement right there, threw me for a loop. Mm-hmm. I have never, in my personal experience, I have never heard a Black man or a Black woman who was laid off from the job, who found themselves unemployed, who worked hard but things didn't go well, who took all the right steps but things still didn't play out where the way where they should have. I've never heard them make the statement, this wasn't supposed to happen to me. Because that statement implies that you believed, at the very least, you believed that if you did all, took all the right steps, did all the things you were supposed to do, you worked hard, you sacrificed, that you would be successful. If you are a marginalized person in this society, you do not hold that belief by and large. Because you know it doesn't always matter how hard you work. It doesn't mean if you make all the right decisions. It doesn't matter if you go to all the right schools, if you say all the right things, right? You can still end up at the bottom. And you know that. So when it happens, you may be frustrated, you may be upset, maybe angry, but you're not as surprised. Does that make sense? So his Doug. sheer surprise told me, Oh wow, like you were functioning out of a certain type of privilege that allowed you to believe that as long as you did the right things, right? As long as you worked hard, you'd be successful. This yeah. wouldn't happen to you. And it's like and that's when privilege comes back to bite you. Right? Yeah.
0: Definitely. Dante, where where can people find you? Um,
1: uh, the best way to get a hold of me is to just simply email me at uh dante.bryant at uncc.edu again that's dante d-a-n-t-e dot bryant b-r-y-a-n-t at uncc.edu that's the best way you can hold me.
0: hey thanks so much for coming on the podcast i know you're busy and i think it's going to do a lot of good
1: man i appreciate it man as always i enjoyed
0: it okay so that's the end of episode number one please join episode number two there's not an introduction really in in episode two we just jump right back into it and the interview keeps going so forgive the lack of transition on that but thanks for joining and please let me know if you have any comments or thoughts Um, you can also reach out to me you can reach out to Dante we appreciate the feedback and also love hearing from people that are listening to the podcast so thanks for joining and uh, we'll see you in the next episode